0: Welcome to the Dinner Party Download. This is your icebreaker.
1: Okay, here's the joke. Why should you never trust an atom?
2: Why? Because they make up everything. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. And from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. The best arts,
0: culture, and food of the week delivered in tidy one-hour audio form. Yes, you just got a teeny joke from filmmaker Jeff Nichols, the mind behind indie hits like Mud. Mm-hmm. We'll chat with him later about his new film, the sci-fi drama Midnight Special, plus English pop band Tinder Sticks, DJ Your Dinner Party. Also coming up, actor and writer Lauren Weedman tells us about the concert that saved
2: her family life, plus advice columnist Heather Haverleski gives us silent treatment. We'll make it work for radio, but first, small talk.
0: All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The subway system for Washington, D.C. Will shut down for 29 hours. European leaders gather in Brussels tomorrow to finalize a plan to push migrants and refugees back to Turkey. The nomination of Judge Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court. Now for something you might not have heard. We are speaking with Danielle Henderson. She is a freelance culture writer writing for outlets like Vulture and many, many more. Danielle, what story are you going to be talking about at parties this week?
3: Well, this week there was a... Controversy in cycling, believe it or not. Oh, what a
0: surprise! Goodness, (laughs)
3: 26 year old Slovakian cyclist Peter Sagan uh, started his season
2: with unshaven legs.
0: And this is a terrible—they always shave their—I guess they do always shave their legs. Do
2: they shave their legs, or do steroids prevent people from growing hair on their legs? You know— That's a question I
0: have. It's
3: kind of maybe it's an either-or situation. <laughs> yeah, maybe,
0: maybe it's a signal. No, but seriously, I guess the reason they do this is because they think it makes them more aerodynamic. They
3: do. Not just aerodynamics, but also they get daily massages. Mm-hmm. So I think that it kind of helps with, with your body. When This sounds like, like a whole—this doesn't sound
2: like cycling. It sounds like, like spaing. Like, yeah, like a, a separate sport that I want to be. It sounds part a little of. ritzy. It sounds a little like a, t- a Tony sport. Yeah. Like, oh,
3: we have to shave our legs and then get massages. Yeah,
0: oh, what a terrible. But life. then they're
3: ho- then they're hopping on a bike for twenty six miles. But if
0: it makes you more aerodynamic, then why didn't he shave?
3: Uh, Peter Sagan's a rebel. He kind of came into the season unsha- unshaven, unshorn, unshorn, and he felt like he didn't have to succumb to peer pressure to shave when it came down to the races. Well, it doesn't be be
2: bad. They they used to smoke. In the Tour de France. Right. There are pictures of them smoking between states. Seriously. So maybe this is just yet another development. <laughs>
3: smoking,
2: shaving. A modern cycling format.
0: I somehow imagine because it's France, I just imagine them with those long filters <laughs> for some reason. Well, that can get in people's spokes. So I think those are banned.
3: <laughs> the giant filters just <laughs> right. stretching out endlessly.
2: Danielle, thanks so much for the small talk. Thank you guys for having me. And now, time for Cocktails.
0: Once again, we tell you something that happened this week in history, and then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our triple distilled history lesson with booze. Smooth. First, the history part. Around this time, back in the 19th century, one of the wonders of the natural world became one of the creepiest. Michelle Philippi tells the tale.
4: Niagara Falls is the most powerful waterfall in North America. Every minute, 168,000 cubic meters of water flow through it. And on March 30th, 1848, it went dry. For real. That morning, townsfolk on either side of the falls, used to the constant roar of all that water, woke up to total silence. Where once flowed a mighty river, they found an almost empty riverbed strewn with dead fish. This was terrifying on a bunch of levels. First of all, economically. The river powered water wheels in the local mills, but suddenly there was no river. The area also boasted a thriving tourism industry, thanks to sightseers who flocked to see the falls, but suddenly there were no falls. And of course, there was the just plain freakiness of it all. While some curious locals wandered the riverbed, collecting ancient tomahawks and other newly exposed treasures, thousands more crowded into churches and prayed for God to bring the water back. Turns out, the problem wasn't supernatural. What happened was, winds had blown tons of ice from Lake Erie into the mouth of the Niagara River, blocking it. When the ice melted 30 hours later, the falls roared back to life. And it's kept flowing ever since. Except once, in 1969, when engineers purposely dammed up the falls to try and remove dangerous rocks. A nice bonus, they found millions of coins in the riverbed. So many, they had to be hauled out in buckets.
2: So that was the history lesson. Now, for a drink to go along with it, I am joined by Peter Ducci. He is a bar manager at the Remington Tavern, which is just downriver from Niagara Falls. Peter, you heard the history. What cocktail did it inspire you to make?
5: Well, this drink is called the River Jam, and I think it uh, pays homage to both sides of the river using Canadian rye whiskey, Crown Royal to be exact, and fresh Niagara County sourced blackberries.
2: All right. this right. I'm glad that you came up with the drink, because I also thought one way to deal with this story would be just to shut down your bar for a day. <laughs> Can you imagine what would happen? I mean, what would—what do you think would happen today if all of a sudden the falls just stopped?
5: Perhaps the worst, part, the worst part's in the Bible. <laughs>
2: <laughs> it would be pretty disorienting. One of the fears would be tourism would stop, but I think if the falls stopped... You'd have a good five years of people just going up there, checking out. Oh, my goodness, what happened over here, right?
5: I'd take a day off from work and head up there myself. (laughs)
2: All right, Peter, so what's in your drink?
5: Um, We have uh, a—it's called a Hum. It's a botanical liqueur uh, made from a master mixologist uh, out of Chicago. Okay. I think it's completely underutilized. I only discovered it myself— A few months ago, Hmm. but it's got nice flavors of uh, hibiscus, ginger root, green cardamom, and kefir lime. So
2: did you select hum partially because of the sound that the falls make, you know, when it went silent?
5: Absolutely, yeah. There was a small humming when the ice jam broke. So, Yeah. Uh, Then we add uh, some locally grown blackberries muddled at the bottom of the glass with a very thinly sliced lemon. A little bit of jam is going to go in with the uh, Crown Royal Rye uh, into a shaker.
2: So you're going to put some berries in there, and then you're also going to include a little bit of jam? Yeah. Oh, I like the jam
5: pun. That's exactly what I was thinking. I'm glad you picked that up. <laughs> then add some coarsely chunked ice to uh, resemble an ice jam, if you will. Of course. Uh, shake up the remaining ingredients. Splash a little soda water in the glass and just fill the glass up. Absolutely refreshing and delicious
2: and then you put it in a super soaker and blast someone in the face like like niagara falls only on spring break my friend Enrico, here's something. All right. uh, New York State Park officials are talking about damming up Niagara Falls again this year. What? Yes, they want to go in and repair a couple of pedestrian bridges. Oh man, grab your buckets, America.
0: <laughs> There's going to be coins for everyone. That's right.
2: We're finally going to end income inequality
0: in this country. Blast. last. Well done. Thanks, Niagara. Yes. Uh, folks, until then, we've got a Rage and Rapids worth of cocktail recipes on our website, dinnerpartydownload.org.
2: And now, the soundtrack, in which a great musician DJs your dinner party.
0: And our guest is Stuart Staples of the beloved UK band Tinder Sticks. Their literate, atmospheric pop has graced the soundtrack of the TV show The Sopranos and of six films by the auteur Claire Denis. The band just celebrated their 25th anniversary by releasing their 11th studio
6: LP. It's called The Waiting Room.
2: Here's Stuart with a playlist and some bittersweet
6: memories. This is Stuart Staples from Tinder Sticks, and I'm here to introduce my dinner party soundtrack. I have a, I suppose a largest kitchen, a stone kitchen, not very tidy, it's kind of higgledy-piggledy and it has a record player and that's kind of where people come in and uh, start an evening I suppose.
0: In the event that this fantastic boy
6: should turn to erosion My first song would be Fantastic Voyage which is the opening song of Lodger my um, favourite David Bowie album Dignity is migrable, but our lives
0: are
7: valuable too.
6: When I was a kid and I listened to Bowie it was probably my least favourite Bowie album and gradually it's kind of risen to the surface it's so relaxed with its creativity it has such a delicate touch
7: I- Nobody's perfect, it's a moving
6: world. There's so much of Bowie's work that has touched me, and he is a a huge reason that made us want to play music. It's like a voice of an old friend. By this time, maybe we'd be around a table eating, and I'm picking a a song called Says from this album called Spacers by a German musician called Nils Fram. He's a soloist, a solo piano player, experimenting with different loops and machines, um, synthesizers, but he's still a one man show. It starts off um, so, so gently and it repeats for a long time and it really brings you in to this place before it releases and it changes. And when that release comes, it's very small but it means so much. If I'm sitting around drinking and talking with my friends, I don't want something to be too aggressive and I think that um, with the Nils from record, they would go what's, what's this, what's going on? And I think that that's Part of getting together as well is exchanging ideas. You know, you don't just want to play the music that everybody knows. Like, all the time you want to kind of um, say, check, check this out. I think the best dinner parties we have always end up with quite a lot of dancing and maybe people have drunk a little too much. And things start to become a bit more spontaneous. (music) I've chosen a song, Marcia Bella, by Lerita Mitsuko. It's got a great synth bass line and it kind of mixes that with a strange kind of acoustic guitar. It's kind of French pop music at its very best, I think, you know, it's full of attitude. I would hope that there is a moment where this song starts and there is a bunch of people kind of on, on their feet. I'm not the kind of person that would play our own songs at a dinner party, yeah. but I think Hey Lucinda could be a good song for a dinner party
1: i
8: of those guys Tonight
0: I'm gonna stay
6: home I spent a weekend in Montreal um, with my good friend Lassa, Lassa De Sella, and We went to the studio and we sang the song together and we had a great time. And unfortunately, not long after this, um, she became ill and we eventually lost her. Had to put all of her songs away for a while and not, not listen to them. But four years later... I started to think about this song again, and when I listened to it, I heard um, this shared moment that we had and realised that, oh, it just needed glockenspiel notes. It needed so little. With the frost And I make it last In these cold And lonely nights
2: A dinner party soundtrack from Stuart Staples of the band Tinder Sticks.
0: Their latest album is called The Waiting Room, and they're touring Europe now. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But coming up, acclaimed filmmaker Jeff Nichols celebrates men of few words when the dinner party download continues.
2: Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the Arts and Leisure section of Public Radio.
0: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. I'm Rico Galliano. Later, fine arts star Dan Colon defends pointlessness. Mm. But first, let's meet our guest of honor.
2: All right. And it's filmmaker Jeff Nichols. He's probably best known for his hit coming-of-age thriller, Mud, about a troubled kid who befriends a drifter in the backwaters of Arkansas. That movie helped relaunch Matthew McConaughey's
0: career, although Nichols' go-to actor is Michael Shannon, who's appeared in all four of his films. Yes, including his new one, the tender sci-fi drama Midnight Special. It's the story of a kid with supernatural abilities whose family must protect him as they're chased through the South by everyone from a religious cult to the federal government. Jeff has said one of his inspirations was John Carpenter's 1984 sci-fi movie Starman. When we spoke this week, I asked what about that film moved him.
1: I think the first time I encountered it was probably on TV, flipping through late night TV. It's just kind of like garbage, 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 mm. and then you come across a showing of Starman. The photography in that film is is really beautiful. Mm. You're just like, now wait a second, what is this? Mm. I just remember being kind of struck by it, and then you get caught up in the story, and there's this mystery that's being handled very pragmatically. You know, like they seem like they're on the locations. You know, where these things were taking place. It looked like you know, the gas stations and the roads that were really out there. And the character behavior seemed to be fairly honest.
0: Yeah, it's pretty realistic. Um, It is, you know. There's something that attracts you to that idea that there's this, like, grand, otherworldly plot happening in a very realistic setting, I guess? Yeah, well,
1: I mean, if you talk about my favorite films from those periods, and it's an earlier film, but Close Encounters is really the pinnacle. If you look at Close Encounters... Spielberg's depiction of American suburban life mm-hmm. at that period of time were probably more realistic than anything I'd seen in any other movie you know it's like you know they've got one of those play for the baby but the baby's not in it the baby's crawling around on the floor and there's a toddler like with a stick just like banging the yeah. side of it and there's always a kid like hitting a piano key yeah the depiction and,
0: of family life in those Spielberg movies like that and E.T. are just chaotic yeah
1: and then of course you know you've got this mystery happening to these everyday people and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and then ends with this kind of mouth agape sense of awe mm. at what the universe can potentially deliver. And I love that. Like, who doesn't want to make a movie like that?
0: You know? <laughs> yeah.
2: um,
0: and it's, I feel like there's also something inherently optimistic about that that I see reflected in your last couple of movies. This idea that, you know, you can live this maybe standard or even humble American life, but spectacular things can happen in the middle of yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it makes the extraterrestrial parts or supernatural
1: parts, whatever they are, feel more grounded. It's like it grabs all that fun stuff and, and holds it closer to Earth.
0: I think it's telling that you mentioned the way family life is depicted in uh, Close Encounters, because all your films are on some level about the difficulties of doing right by your family, and you're very sympathetic in your movies to all the family members, but especially, it seems to me, the husbands who often seem like these tough guys but are actually scared and they're fragile in a lot of ways. Are are those men always you, you know, some representation of yourself? Or was there another family member like that who made an impression on you in that way?
1: I think there were other family members. I mean, obviously, you can hear me talking. I like the sound of my own voice and, and you know, at least when it comes to talking about my movies. Sure. But, you know, I grew up in Arkansas, and my grandfather especially, he cared for us very deeply, but he just didn't talk a lot, mm. you know? And, in fact, I remember... The first movie in the American South that I saw that I actually thought was accurate, really accurate, was Sling Blade. Sling Blade. And when I heard Billy Bob Thornton's voice in that film, I was like, huh, that sounds like my grandfather, which is a little embarrassing to say. But that's about the amount that he talked. And Mm. I really like the idea that these men, their emotional capacity is not at all diminished. They just can't articulate the way they feel. What that does is it makes it kind of just emit from their pores. These are the men that, it's not just that I knew them growing up, but they're the ones in a way I, I respected the most. It just seemed like a very pure, honest way to approach life, not to have to explain everything on a talk show every time, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but to just look at somebody and visit with them in a quiet way and, and know they're kind of in lockstep with you emotionally.
0: Well, let's, actually, let's hear an example of one of these characters uh, from your film Midnight Special. This is a clip uh, in which Michael Shannon plays Roy... And he's a father. He's about to protect his son, Alton, from the armies that have been pursuing him. Dad? Yeah.
4: Are you scared? Yes. You don't have to worry about me.
7: I like worrying about you.
2: I don't
6: have to anymore. I'll always worry about you. That's the deal.
0: You mentioned representations of the South in films. Um, This movie, like your last one, is set in the South. How conscious are you of the way that you portray the South? Do you have an agenda, I guess?
1: I don't know. It's tricky. Um, Because it would be easy to say, well, I'm from there, so I know everything about it. And and that's... (laughs) Doesn't really matter. In fact, sometimes some of the worst southern films can be made by southerners because mm. we um, we want to show people how we want to be seen.
0: Uh, you want to um, call anybody out in particular?
1: No. Well, <laughs> I'll use an example. I've worked with actors before that have come from the south, and I hear them talk, and I'm like, "You have a great natural southern accent. This is beautiful. This will work out well." And then we start rolling the camera, and it's like, "Hey y'all, y'all, y'all!" And you're like, "Wow, where did that?" Where did that come from? They're putting it on. You know, they're just, yeah, they're laying it on thick. And it's like, wow, someone has told you what Southerners sound like. And now you're doing that. And, um, mm. and that makes me want to cry. <laughs> I think, you know, for me, because I'm susceptible to it as well. I try and just check myself on that as much as I can. I try to say, okay, I don't want everybody in a cool old pickup truck. You know, Mm -hmm. what would they really be driving? Um, And, like, not everybody's listening to a perfectly timed Hank Williams track, right, when you want it. They're usually listening to corn with the K backwards. I
0: noticed, actually, one one of the characters in uh, Mud is wearing a T-shirt from the punk band Fugazi, which seems like the last thing I would ever imagine this, like, swamp rat kid would be wearing.
1: That's my affectation. But also, you know, I came from Little Rock uh, in the 90s, and there was this really great punk rock scene. Like, that happened.
0: You're just kind of getting the the breadth of that Southern experience in there. It's not just the stereotype. Yeah, for sure. And Not a lot of people saw that one coming. I did not, which actually uh, dovetails well with one of the questions that we ask all our guests on this show, Hmm. and that is tell us something we don't know, either about yourself or just uh, a piece of trivia about the world.
1: Well I'll pull this I'll pull this anecdote out of uh, mud if that's all right.
0: From the movie from making the movie mud?
1: Well, no, from um there's a process in it. So Michael Shannon's character dives for mussel shells. Yes. And that was a tradition that first started on the Arkansas River and the White River and the Mississippi River because they would use the mussel shells for buttons for buttons. But as yeah, they would make buttons out of them.
0: Oh, I thought, so he's not diving for the meat, for muscle meat, he's diving for the shell.
1: Well, but the thing is, buttons are made out of plastic now, which makes sense. And the trade of muscle shell diving on these rivers almost died away until in the 80s, they figured out how to grow cultured pearls and these mussel shells. And so what they would do is sell the shells to the Japanese who became very good at growing cultured
0: pearls. Oh, wow, it's not that the people in, in, in the south here are growing the pearls, they're getting the shells to send to Japan to grow the pearls. Correct,
1: and uh, I was talking to one of the local mussel shell divers there and he thought it was quite funny that women would go into these high highfalutin stores and buy these expensive pearls that had been <laughs> grown out of shells in the <laughs> muddy river behind their house.
0: Jeff Nichols speaking to us from Austin, Texas, where his new movie Midnight Special premiered this week at the South by Southwest Film Festival. It hits theaters this weekend.
2: And by the way, this is a Fugazi tune just for Jeff, which happens to be called Brendan Number (laughs) 1. Yes. I don't think it's about you. It's a good title, though. I guess.
4: And now, time to eavesdrop.
2: Lauren Weedman turned heads with her scene-stealing role on HBO's Looking, which earned her Critics' Choice nomination. She's also turned her colorful life into nine one-woman shows and two books. The latest, Miss Fortune, came out this week. Today, we overhear a tale from it.
9: So I'm adapted, and I didn't meet my birth mother, Diane, until I was 19 years old. The entire time that I've known her, the last 20 years, she's just been so perfect completely irreverent about the adoption thing. I mean, every time she leaves the room, she's like, I'll be right back. This time, I mean it. The jokes are endless. You know, if I forget to call her back, I'm like, sorry I didn't call you back. I'm a little unstable. I'm adopted. And that has been our shtick over the years. And it's just, to me, I'm like, that is, that's my blood, clearly. And then when I was pregnant and I needed someone to come out and help me after the baby was born, it turned out that my doctor mother couldn't do it because she had, um, was ill, and so, so Diane came out. And I thought, again, that's what a perfect fit, to have her around helping me take care of uh, Leo, the new baby. But when she got there, from the moment she walked into the apartment um, and saw Leo for the first time, I was immediately mad at her. I'd really never gotten angry at her. She was always just such a score. But she walks in the room, and the first thing she says is she's like, oh, good, he's a good-looking baby. C-section's way to go. Hey, I'm Bubs." She decided that her grandma name was going to be Bubs, which was her favorite character from The Wire. And she, like, screams in his little baby face. She's like, call me Bubs. Normally I love that sense of humor, but for some reason I was like, it, it, she didn't, I don't know, I was like, there's a baby here. Take a second. Like, here, he's new person to meet. I don't know. It felt like it needed a little more, uh, some weight to it when she first met him. After that... I'm like, if I just built up this whole entire fantasy about what I wanted her to be, who she maybe I've really had been so blinded by what I needed her to be that I wasn't seeing her clearly. So fast forward a couple of years later, I'm I'm visiting Diane in Indiana and all of her family, my, my half-brothers and sisters and stuff, all live there. And we all went to go see a Paul Simon concert. And then a song, "A Mother and Child Reunion, comes on. And that's a song I've heard a million times. And at first I was like, oh, God, like, of course, everyone's going to look down like, oh, look, the mother and child who had a reunion are sitting next to each other. Blah, blah, blah. But the song comes on and the lyrics were much more profound as I'm sitting next to Diane. Oh,
1: little of mine I can't fall the life for me Remember a Saturday
2: I know they say Let it be.
9: Diane reaches over and grabs my hand, and we both are crying during the song. In
2: the course of a lifetime Over and over
9: again After the the concert, we we're walking out, and Diane turns to me, and she goes, You know what? I need to tell you something, Lauren. Giving you up was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, and it is the most painful thing that's ever happened to me. But I never wanted you to worry about that, and I never wanted to think that your your, your birth was anything but good. And I, I, I thought that by, you know, being sort of, you know, irreverent about it or being jokey about it, that, that that would be helpful to you. But now I'm realizing maybe you needed to know that. Maybe you needed to know that it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. I had no idea how much I needed to hear that. We are in the car afterwards, uh, driving back, and and we're all talking about the concert and what our favorite song was. And I'm like, you know, I'm like, I have to say Mother and Child Reunion is kind of going to the top of my list. And uh, my half-sister Danza's like, oh, yeah, that's that was uh, based on Paul Simon's favorite restaurant in Brooklyn that shut down. And then my, my half-brother Justin's like, no, it wasn't. It's about his dog who died. I'm like, OK, thank you. Thank you. This is clearly my family. No, well, I would not give you false hope On this strange and thing. But the mother
0: Weedman, Weedman, her new book is called Misfortune, Fresh Perspectives on Having It All from Someone Who is Not Okay. And you're listening to The Dinner Party Download and to Paul Simon from American Public Media. So Rico,
2: when I say March, Texas, and festival, what comes to mind? Marfa Myths. That's Duh. right. The Marfa <laughs> Miss Festival, <laughs> held in the tiny southwestern Texan town of Marfa. Yep. Now, some might think of the slightly larger South by Southwest Festival. That's nonsense. It is. Never heard of it. Yes. But for many, Marfa Mist has increasingly become the place to be. Mm. It's hosted by indie music label Mexican Summer and local art gallery Ballroom Marfa. There's a lot of music. A lot of performance art. And a lot of fine art,
0: which is a little hard to get across on the radio. Yeah, We should make a silent podcast and call it painting. That's right. With fun. silent underwriting. Yeah, non-existent.
2: <laughs> anyway, at the center of the fest <laughs> is a fine art show called After Effects, All right. and it includes pieces by world-renowned artist Dan Cullen. His work is in the Whitney Museum's permanent collection, among others. I asked Dan to describe the three large paintings he contributed to the show.
7: Yeah, I'll try to make this as complicated as possible for all you out there. (laughs) No, what we're seeing is, first simply, is a a triptych that kind of surrounds us. There's one in front of us, and there's one on either side of us. And it's a sequence from uh, Disney's Fantasia. It's a split-second moment kind of broken into three segments of a cloud blotting out the sun. The first painting on our left There's a dark cloud forming in the bottom corner, but there's still light piercing through it on all sides and in the middle of it. And as we look around, the cloud gets larger and larger until it's kind of this black mass. And also, it's purple. The the cloud is purple and black, and the sky is white and blue. And the sky has very bright rays coming out of it. But even the purple of the black has a kind of looming quality, even though it's vibrant. Uh, But what I'm trying to kind of accomplish is maybe transcend the image a little bit through the material and the way I apply it. They're they're sprayed oil. It's traditional artist oil paint, but it's it's sprayed in many 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 layers, and there's really nothing that speaks to any kind of like illusionistic deep space. So the clouds in the sky, on quick glance, you see them like the clouds in front and the sky in back. But when you actually spend a little time with it, there's really no space implied, and so they're kind of on one plane. So, so it has an abstract quality, and the material is like kind of first and foremost.
2: So is this something, did you pick this triptych knowing that you were coming to Marfa, which has the big sky, or was this just, you know, you have a stream of projects you're constantly working on, and this felt right at some point?
7: Well, this is what I'm working on now, but I met with all the, the ladies that run uh, Ballroom before I actually started the work, and I was planning on it, it just seems really like a great, a great thing to do. Some of my biggest influences are landscape painters like Claude Lorraine and Caspar David Friedrich and, and, you know, Turner and Constable, like these painters of skies are really, really important to me. Those painters unapologetically sought to create or at least kind of illustrate but I think create a, a spiritual experience, you know, using nature as their kind of subject, but understanding that like through the act of painting, there could be a, like a deeper connection to whatever nature was able to kind of provoke in a person they thought painting could too.
2: Uh, this isn't the first time you've drawn from the world of Disney or animation. You've done landscapes with
7: Bambi. Why, why do that? I mean, it, it, this is always a hard question for me to answer because Disney, it, it's such a, like, it comes with so much baggage. It's, it it kind of, like, became a big part of my work in a pretty fluid way. So, like, I was never like, I'm going to, you know, I have this mission with Disney and it, because it means this, this, and that. You know, it really kind of developed. There was a project 10 years or 15 years ago that I needed uh, a fairy for, and I was going to use Tinkerbell, and then I was looking through the book, and I decided to use the fairy from Pinocchio, and I had the book, and then I finished that painting, and I, there was a different image from Pinocchio that that spoke to me, and so, um, you know, then for many years, I didn't use it, and, but there are certain images that stayed in my mind, which is the quality of Disney, and which is what I'm interested in, you know, we all carry it with us, it's kind of like part of all of our basic kind of cultural vocabulary, and the idea that, like, the thing that's made for every child can also be the most sublime thing, the most potent thing, and it has layers and layers and layers of meaning. Like, everything does, really, depending on how we come to it. For Again, for
2: someone who's not an artist, thinking back on this triptych, um, like, if they had a Saturday afternoon, and this was, say, in wherever, Kansas City, why should they come look at this? Like, what could they gain from looking at
7: paintings? Right. That is a good question. I'm not happy you asked it, but it's a I apologize. good question. No, 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 it's a good question. Um, you know... There are no words, but I can share, like, why I do what I do is I believe strongly. And, you know, and it's no different from, from music or literature. Um, these, the arts change the world. They just do. Like, I don't know how, I don't know why, and I don't know, like, at what kind of pace they have their impact. You know, they seep. And, like, to spend an afternoon doing something that, like, has no purpose, really, is important, you know, visual arts or a book or listening to music all give you that opportunity to, you know, there's enjoyment in all of it, but there is also a curiosity to all of it that like allows us to kind of consider something without that point at the end of it. You know, I think that's really important. Dan
2: Cullen, his paintings are on display at the gallery Ballroom Marfa in Marfa, Texas. It's part of the show After Effects, which just opened as part of the Marfa Mist Festival. It runs through August.
0: Well worth productively wasting some time at. True. Uh, All right, coming up, etiquette tips, a whiskey shortage, and more when the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano.
2: I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, we'll learn all about the supposed whiskey shortage that's going on right now. It wasn't us. Nope. We promise. We are draining the world of gin.
0: But first, <laughs> it's time for our weekly etiquette lesson. All right. Each week, you send in your questions about how to behave. And here to answer them this time around is writer Heather Haverleski. Her existential advice column, Ask Polly, in New York Magazine's fashion blog, The Cut, has guided her loyal readers through tepid relationships, friend breakups, work anxieties, and many more. Browse the archive. You'll find questions like, am I a boring, empty, soulless fake? And I sent that one. <laughs> that was you, Brendan. <laughs> yeah. And uh, why doesn't anything feel fun? That was me. I sent that one too. <laughs> <laughs> we both sent that one. <laughs> Just go through those. You're bound to find some sage advice for whatever neuroses you're navigating at the moment, ladies and gentlemen. Heather's book, How to Be a Person in the World Ask Polly's Guide Through the Paradoxes of Modern Life, comes out this summer. You can pre order it now. And Heather, it's lovely to have you back.
8: It's very lovely to be here. So
0: we have a question for you. Your, your first book was a memoir. That's true.
2: Called?
8: Disaster Preparedness.
2: And in it, you describe your childhood, which is probably darker than most people's. You and your siblings growing up in North Carolina changed the game of Clue such that you're no longer finding the murderer, but trying to commit the murder.
8: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Can Can you explain, explain that? Um Well... We had a lot of board games that were sort of missing half their pieces, and my brother Mm. was um, a little bit into Dungeons & Dragons. Mm. Uh, He was always the dungeon master.
0: No, wow. He mm. was a
8: little bit controlling. I was (laughs) going to say, control for you. Um, We decided that Clue was kind of boring. Yeah. So we made up this game called Cousins where we took all the people from sorry. So there were like blue green people and blue people and mm. yellow people. Oh, like the
0: pieces kind of?
8: Yeah, the pieces. Well they're they're people. Those are people. They're
0: representing people, yes. And they
8: were all they were all cousins and we took the do you remember the Bermuda Triangle game? It's like it's like mm-hmm. these ships on a board and then there's this big magnetic cloud that like sucks up the ships. <laughs> Whoa. But we didn't use the cloud. We used the um, compass where you'd spin the compass and then all the cousins would move northwest like the storm would in (sighs) Bermuda Triangle. So, like, you'd get your murder assignment... Uh, kill Colonel Mustard with a rope in the billiard room, mm-hmm. but if there were cousins there, you'd have to chase them down and kill them too.
0: <laughs> wow! So was this yeah. motivated wow. by a hatred of your cousins or
8: something? Um, I think it definitely speaks volumes about how we felt about blood relations.
0: Okay, well, this is in exactly why we have you here to offer advice <laughs> to our listeners right and yes. tell them how to act. Are you ready for these?
8: Yes, I'm quite ready.
0: All right, here is something from Michelle in Los Angeles. And Michelle writes, my supervisor at work and I are both going to the same concert a few hours away. She suggested in a way that was more than a suggestion that we share a hotel room to cut costs. I don't want to share a room, but I also don't want to offend her. I'm a little particular on these matters. How do I get out of this situation or convey this without damaging our friendship or our professional relationship?
8: Well, as a very high-strung human being... <laughs> who always wants things my way i'm kind of a dungeon master myself yeah. in other words oh. um, Dungeon master type a, a dungeon master type needs kind of like a way of pathologizing their own behavior as an excuse for getting whatever they want so what i usually say is something like i'm so sorry, I'm really just super weird about sharing a bowl of soup across the table with somebody.
0: Else. So you acknowledge that you're particular, basically.
8: Yes, but it's, I also make it sound like it's a crazy, crazy thing. Like, I'm sorry, I don't usually, you know, mm. tongue kiss mm. people I meet mm. at the grocery store. Yes, so,
0: it's you. Like it's that. you that has the but, problem, not the person that put yes, you in this weird situation.
8: Exactly. Well, what
2: if Michelle's supervisor is also a dungeon master? Um, it becomes a little more delicate because you don't want to telegraph your crazy to a boss, do you?
8: Well, you can also say... I love sleeping alone in hotel rooms so much. It's such a, such a rare luxury for me.
0: Uh, I see. Put in mm-hmm. a positive light.
8: Yeah, because I actually last year slept alone in a bunch of hotel rooms for the first time maybe in my professional <laughs> life. But it was a, a such a luxury to be alone in a, like a, a nice hotel room, you know? Yeah, yeah. We literally stayed in $15 hotel rooms when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah. Like Holiday Inn was high end.
0: Yeah, it's like Super 9 motel is yeah. what you were saying. <laughs>
8: so, exactly.
0: <laughs> All right, so it sounds like you you have two options there, uh, Michela. You can either portray yourself as pathological or just say you really need some alone time.
2: Our next question comes from Melissa in Elizabeth, New Jersey. Melissa writes, how do you handle family asking, why are you single? Or how's the love life? I understand asking once in a while, but I have a friend who does so every time we converse or text. Ugh. I'm in my early 40s and frankly tired of being asked this question.
8: You know, people who are not alone have this strange thing where they they have like a background buzz of anxiety about being alone that goes on mm. with them at all times, like, a, like an old refrigerator that's just humming in the background.
0: That they could be alone.
8: They could be alone at any minute. So when they see someone who is alone, all they're really doing is making noise about their own fears of being alone. Mm. Um, they're like, oh, my God, mm. you're alone. Something must be done. So... I think that the desire to care for the person who doesn't have a partner, I think it comes from a very sincere place. So, first of all, you do have to keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, repeat offenders who continue to point out that you're alone. Not only that, but they want to know, Mm -hmm. like, why are you single? I mean, that's like what, you know.
0: Why do I breathe? Like, what can I do about it? Yeah. That's how it
8: is. You want to say to those people... Why are you married? Mm -hmm. You know, like what, how's that going? Is it as good as you thought it would be? Why
2: aren't
0: you single?
8: Yeah. Why aren't you single? How's
0: your love life?
8: Are you guys still having sex? Do you remember love?
0: (laughs) It's true. So, what do you do with that person?
8: Lately, I'm a big fan of the uncomfortable silence. If you've ever read the book One Minute Manager, which.
0: (laughs) No, I haven't.
8: All it is is when someone, like a, a subordinate, is not living up to their promise, you go in and you tell them what they did wrong, and then you Mm. let a solid minute of silence (laughs) go by as they squirm (laughs) uncomfortably in their seat. Oh,
2: my God. I like this. And it's like like this
8: weird punishment thing. You just
2: stare at them if they ask you. Yeah, you just look Why are you at single? them. you single? You just look at them, and then how about this, Heather? Because like, I feel like I do something like this. It's a nuclear option, I admit. But you just stare at them, and then you kind of maybe start to move your head back and forth, left and right, like, <laughs> while you're looking, but while making eye contact.
8: Yeah, yeah. Like that's not you're making bad choices. <laughs> bad choices. All
0: right, there you go, Melissa. Uh, here's something from Diane. Diane writes, "I've been invited to friends' homes who insist that you leave your shoes at the door. Mm-mm. I don't want to take off my shoes." I don't like walking around barefoot, and more likely than not, the shoes make my outfit. How do mm. I say nicely I'd rather keep my shoes on? I, I mean, this is I want to hear what you have to
2: say about this, Heather, because I have the same issue as Diane. I you know what's say.
8: extra terrible in this situation is when you're a woman and you haven't gotten a pedicure. Mm. You're walking around with these terrible, dirty, snaggletooth <laughs> toenails. Yeah, that's, that's um, a medical mm-hmm. term. Chances are you can get away with walking into the house with your shoes on. If they care enough, they'll come up to you. And say, could you take your shoes off? We don't really wear shoes inside.
0: Yes, yes. At
8: Mm. which point you can just give them the one minute of um, scoldy (laughs) silence. Yeah,
2: exactly. (laughs) Exactly. You just stare at them and move your head side to side. Wow, you guys
0: really hate taking your shoes off. It's amazing. Because
2: in New York, you're walking around for 10 hours. You're walking around with wet socks or, like, whatever.
0: It's just gross. You <laughs> just gross. What happened to your guys' feet? You got wet socks and snaggled teeth. I use them. <laughs> Unlike L.A. We're not driving from place to place. <laughs> That's so true. I, Unlike
2: us Angelinos. I know you wear just pre eye on your feet. <laughs> <laughs> our feet are gross, Rico.
0: You don't even want to see our feet. Uh,
8: yeah, I, my feet are dirtier than the outside of my shoes. Why would you want these filthy, <laughs> exactly. filthy things on your floor?
0: I definitely am not having you guys take your shoes off in my house. But thank you very much, Heather, for telling our audience how to be.
8: Oh, yeah. I am here as a beacon unto you all.
2: Heather Haverleski, she writes the Ask Polly advice column for New York Magazine's fashion
0: blog, The Cut. Her Ask Polly book, How to Be a Person in the World, comes out this summer. And folks, if you have a question, we want to hear it. Send an email to us through our website, dinnerpartydownload.org, and you can do that with or without shoes. With shoes. And now, the main course, the part of the show where we talk about food. In this case, the drinkable kind of food. We're going to talk about whiskey. Oh, yes. Yeah. A staple of the American diet. Yes, the fifth food group. Mm. And if you believe news stories that have been flying around for the last few months, the world is in the midst of a whiskey shortage, mm. especially of very old scotch.
2: That's right. Scotch AARP membership is down. <laughs> it's, it's sad. Bankrupting them.
0: So the thing is, for folks who don't know, scotch is aged in barrels, sometimes for over a decade. And back when that stuff was put in the barrels, whiskey companies didn't realize that today there would be so much more demand for this stuff.
2: And they didn't make enough to accommodate that demand.
0: That's right. Or at least that's what some people say. Others aren't so sure. This week I spoke to Reed Mittenbuehler. He wrote the book Bourbon Empire about the history of American whiskey. And he's got a contrarian view of the shortage, although he does admit whiskey demand has skyrocketed. I asked him why.
3: There are a number of, you know, theories floating around. You know, the one I like to say is You can use the American whiskey market as an example. America was a whiskey-drinking nation. And then in the 60s, you saw the market start to crater as baby boomers. started to affiliate whiskey as kind of an old man's drink. It was, you know, part of the past, and they turned to lighter drinks like vodka and that kind of thing. And they were rejecting the past. And I think the reason it's popular today is a reversal of that.
0: Yeah, Um, we're embracing the past in the cocktail world. We're embracing
3: the past. it was a nostalgic element and also a fashion statement, I think.
0: Definitely. And then also, it's my understanding, you also have the rise of you know a whole class of new Scotch consumers in places like China. Well, absolutely. International markets. And when I talked to the
3: companies while doing book research, you know, they told me that if demand really booms in places like India and China, it's going to clear them out. Uh, one of the companies told me, if everyone who drinks Scotch, and Scotch dominates international markets, if one person in a bar every night were to switch their order from Scotch to some kind of American whiskey, be it rye or bourbon, it would just clear out all the warehouses in the United States. It's, it's, There'd be none left. That's what they're worried about oh, is no. those markets. I
0: can't imagine an America without whiskey. That's <laughs> right. a nightmare. It'd be like
3: The Walking Dead, right? The whiskey <laughs> versions. <laughs> terrible. Wandering
0: around trying to find it. I don't want to live in that America. No. I mean, clearly that's probably not going to happen. But the, in the meantime, some of these old Scotches are now going for insane prices, right?
3: They are. You're seeing bottles on the U.S. side of the market that, you know, were maybe— $50, $60, $70 just a few years ago, you'll see them in these kind of gray market, black market sites on online going for thousands. And sometimes you'll see the empty bottles going um, <laughs> for just a couple hundred, which, you know, if you're buying your liquor <laughs> online from some
0: guy, I'd be a little suspicious. Now, I know that you take a contrary view of this shortage. You don't think it's as bad as it's being made out to right. be and that it's kind of a speculative bubble. So
3: explain that. So... There've been a lot of articles in a lot of press recently about you know this whiskey shortage, which is a great headline. You know, sure. but they always kind of come with this image that you'll walk into your liquor store and it's going to be this barren wasteland, <laughs> yes. you know, like tumbleweeds. <laughs> There's like a lone wolf howling off in the in the distance, you know, and it's like you're not going to be able to get whiskey whatsoever. Right. But a lot of these brands are actually on allotment. You know, a certain amount is set aside for certain regions, the way liquor is usually distributed. And you know, before it would run out, say in three months. Well, now it's maybe running out in two months. So there might be a month gap where you're not going to find it. But if you wait a little bit, you are going to find it. I and, you know. And if you take your gaze and you move it just a few inches over on the shelf, you're going to see something else that's really good, maybe even better for maybe even a lower price. But people are getting excited. A lot of people are coming to Whiskey News. There's a lot of new customers who are excited about it. And I don't know if those lessons have fully sunk in yet. I'm friends with a, a gentleman who owns a few liquor stores here in New York. And I asked him, what's the biggest difference between five, six, seven years ago and right now? And he goes, back then, people would come in, they only would buy a bottle or two, and I'm starting to see a lot more customers wanting cases. As soon as I get my shipment, Uh they vacuum it up. So I have this vision of a lot of whiskey geeks, you know. They've got these basements and closets full of whiskey. It's like a scene from Indiana Jones or something. (laughs) You open it up, and there's a glow, and, you know, (laughs) they're— Huddled with a shotgun, you will know, get away from my whiskey.
0: They're speculating, basically. They're holding on to it in, in case it becomes incredibly valuable. Right. And this is something that
3: has always happened with whiskey. Even back in the 1800s, um, you had these speculative bubbles.
0: But what you're saying is that there's not actually a shortage of some of these bottles. They're just people buying up tons of it and stowing it in their basements in the hopes that it becomes more valuable. I've seen it. I've got a
3: couple friends and acquaintances. Um, I have one acquaintance who recently sold his his bunker. <laughs> I won't say for exactly how much, but he was able to buy a second home.
0: (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. How much booze did that guy have? How big was his basement, for God's sake?
3: Well, and he had been buying it for decades, and he had a big basement, and he was just kind of shaking his head. And he was like, you know, people are just going going crazy. And there's a a sense, too, you're starting to see in the market now. It used to be a lot of companies would just focus on having a few just a few brands that they really pushed, and you're seeing a lot more limited releases now, Mm -hmm. special one-offs, and they're not necessarily that special, but it creates a sense of exclusivity, a sense of rarity around the brand when the when the company's like, well, you know what? It's only going to be available for a few months. Yeah,
0: I always, when I go to the airport, I'll wander into the uh, duty-free shop, and I'm always just kind of wandering around going, what would it be like if I just had enough money that I could just on a whim at an airport spend hundreds and sometimes thousands of dollars on one of these collector limited edition bottles? But you're saying they're not necessarily worth it.
3: They're not necessarily worth it. And some of them can be very good, but... You know, whiskey inherently is a very simple product. It's just some grains, you know, that's the base, and you just throw it in an old barrel. It's not that complicated, but, you know, the sweet hustle of the history of this industry is we're going to try to take what in America was just hillbilly juice, basically, right? <laughs> and we're going to try to get people to charge more for it. I mean, it's a business.
0: <laughs> Reed Mittenbuehler. He wrote the book Bourbon Empire and he also gave us a list of great affordable scotches. One of them is actually 29 bucks at Trader Joe's. That list mm. is on our website dinnerpartydownload.org. And that's the Dinner Party Download
2: for this week, folks. Next week, we'll chat with the great graphic novelist Daniel Klaus. Yes. Tune in for that. Meanwhile, let us tell you that Jackson Musker produces the show. Our associate producer is Nina Potok and our associate digital producer is Christina Lopez. Chris Clark and Ben Tolliday engineered Carla, Javier, and Christian Coons are our interns. Larissa Anderson is our executive
0: producer. If you dig what you hear, do head over to iTunes, where you can subscribe to our podcast and download special bonus episodes. We've got one up there right now featuring never-aired conversations with Alan Cumming and Oscar winner Adam McKay. Enjoy, and bon appétit.